Thank you so much for that reading from also the Old Testament. So you don't have to stand for a gospel lesson this time. You can remain seated. And yet the word probably calls you to stand, I imagine, in some ways. Certainly in spirit and especially as you go out from today. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. Good morning, church. Great to see you on this beginning of Lent. If you're a guest today, I'm Ray, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Front Street. Um, I have not preached in six weeks other than funerals and Wednesday night. And uh, I was telling the crowd this morning that I have not preached that long in 35 years. I have not gone that long and not preached. Now, some have said, oh, you've preached for six weeks in one service, but that's beside the point. But we're glad that you're here today, but we're, the season of Lent is often a reflective time, and we thought as we continue for this yearly kind of focus on why God, diving into some really deep things as far as some of the questions the world and the community ask of us Christians, and perhaps some of us Christians ask ourselves. And the next few weeks, uh, we'll be going to, God, why don't you answer my prayer or give me guidance? Why do disaster, disasters happen? Then the week after Easter, we'll do Palm Sunday, then Easter, and the week after Easter, I'll be preaching on why believe in God. And so we hope that these will be inspirational and informative, but they're going to be packed. Uh, I told some of the staff this morning that this message today started out as 46 pages. You want me to use all of that right now? Somebody said, no, no, don't do that. Uh, I got it down to 16, so we'll see how it goes. Anyhow, it's great to be with you, and we start today, and we're thinking, doing some theologizing, and we want to think carefully about God and understand one of the great dilemmas when it comes to faith. And that is how do we reconcile the idea of a good and loving and all-powerful God with the horrible things that happen in our lives? What happens when human beings harm one another? Where is God in the face of affairs and marital relationship when anyone intentionally hurts another human being, emotionally, spiritually, or even physically? So we're going to take a look at that through the lens of one of the most difficult atrocities that has happened on our planet in the past 30 years that most of us will remember one of the most horrible things that I can remember one human being doing to another. In 1994, 800,000 people, that is not an exact number, some have said between 500,000 and a million most historians go with 800,000 people, were murdered in a period of about four months, 100 days. Do you remember it? Some of you may have forgotten. Some of you saw the movie about it. It was the genocide of the people of Rwanda by their own people. So let's talk about Rwanda for just a minute. And this will be an oversimplified historical version 
because we don't have time. My 46 pages got edited to 16. I'll share the 46 with you in a private session if you'd like. But in Rwanda, there have been for centuries essentially three ethnic groups or perhaps caste systems. The three groups are the Tutsi, the Hutus, and the Twa. The Tutsi were the caste that had animals. They were herders historically, and historically, if they had 10 cattle, 10 head of cattle, they would be categorized as Tutsi, and they were probably uh, the more wealthy in the caste system. In contemporary history, the Tutsis were the leading soldiers in governmental administration personnel. Now, the Tutsis were about 14% of the population. Now, the Hutus were the farming people, so they had crops, and they were typically less well-off than the Tutsis, and their place in the ordering of, of culture and society. The Hutus, however, were about 85% of the population. The Tutsis, 14, the Hutus, 85%. And the Twa people, about 1% of the population, were those who were hunter-gatherers, but they also in modern times became the folks who made the pottery. And so you have these three different castes, if you will. But starting in the early 1900s, these divisions were deepened, essentially by Rwandan European colonizers. The colonizers noticed that generally the Tutsis, uh, they tended to have more wealth because they had more cattle, but also they had longer, narrower noses, a lighter hue of skin, and they were taller than the other tribes or castes. And the colonizers began giving them better jobs. It gave them education and status. This 14% of the population, the Tutsis, and they became the ruling caste. So these were how the divisions came to be deepened in their culture and society. And there was conflict sometimes between these different groups. And sometimes that was focused by the political leaders. And in 1990, the Hutus gained political control over the country. Again, they were 85% of the population. And at least some of the Hutus in 1990 began to systematically oppress the former rulers of the Tutsis who had been in control or the higher caste of their society and culture. And so by 1990, some extremist Hutus had come to this political power and they had a view of the Tutsis that saw them as foreigners who had come to Rwanda centuries before and began to see them not only as foreigners, but they began to talk about them as traitors of the people, of the Rwandan people. They began to talk about them as enemies, how they were bad for their country. Now this is on the radio and the public uh, political discourse and speeches. The Hutu extremists were saying that the Tutsis were foreigners, traitors, destroying the country. They were enemies of Rwanda. They were called snakes and cockroaches. And it continued, and they, the rhetoric said they should be removed. No, some said they should be exterminated. This is the progression of conversation and the talk that's happening at the top levels of political diatribes. Now, you need to understand something. The Hutus and the Tutsis and Twa lived in the same communities together. They attended the same churches. As a matter of fact, 95% of Rwanda, of every one of those castes and tribes, were Christian, 95% of them. So they went to church together, and many fell in love with one another and married one another. Again, this is an oversimplification, but in 1994, after four years of hearing this sort of hateful, degrading talk, on April 7th, 1994, 
a Hutu leader gave the call to kill the Tutsis. And Hutu governmental leaders actually distributed throughout the country machetes. Horribly, 37% of the 800,000 deaths happened by people being macheted by their neighbors, their teachers, their Sunday school teachers, their choir leaders. Over a period of 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis were killed. It's just horrendous. It was unthinkable. Did you see the movie, Hotel Rwanda? Did anybody see that movie? A couple of you? The rest of you go see it. But it doesn't touch the atrocities. How in the world, in this modern age, 1994, could this have happened? Where was God in the midst of this? Why didn't God stop it? Was it actually God's will that this takes place? These are the kinds of questions that come to mind in these types of atrocities. Two is the same questions we often ask when someone has hurt or wronged us or someone we love dies. Perhaps tragically we ask that question more. So I want to begin thinking about those questions first by coming to grips with some assumptions that often people in Christian circles have or some people outside of Christian circles say that we have. The assumption one is that if you're a Christian and you love Jesus and you gave Jesus your life and you sought to do God's work through Jesus the Christ, his will, that God would protect you from all harm, that nothing bad would happen to you. And there are a handful of scriptures when not fully conceived and understand in their proper perspective seem to indicate that. What happened? I can't turn a page here. There we go. However, as you begin to read the Bible, What you find is the Bible doesn't really promise that our lives will be all hunky-dory and pain-free. The overarching message of scriptures is not that at all. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament we call it, it doesn't teach that bad is going to never happen to those of you who follow God. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament we see adversity and pain and difficulty and suffering of God's people. So the story of the Old Testament is not the story that God protects us from ever having anything bad happen to us. The story is that God walks with us through the hell that we walk through on earth. And then God promises that the hell that we walk through will never have the final word. And then when we get the New Testament, if we had illusions that if you're good and you love Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to you, That comes immediately into question in the founding story as Christians, which is the story of Jesus Christ himself, God's son walking on planet earth, doing what's good and kind and just and right and holy. He ends up being tortured to death on a cross. How could our faith be asserting that nothing bad will ever happen to you when our founding figure, our Savior and Lord, is crucified? Two, his followers, his best friends, the apostles, almost all of them died a torturous death because they believed in him and refused to say no. Another assumption. And that's the assumption that everything happens for a reason. It must have been the will of God. I know none of you have ever heard of that. And you know, if this is how it works, then everything that happens must be the will of God. Then that leaves us in a bit of a quandary. 
We know 20 to 30,000 people die every day of starvation, of malnutrition, or related diseases, often from drinking water that's not clean. We in the United Methodist Church drill wells across the world for people that don't have drinking water. And if, if, if what God desires is if this is what God wants to happen, and if God wants that to happen, why should we be drilling wells? Because it must be the will of God that those people die. If you're going to die in a car accident and it's God's will somehow, then what's the point of something called seatbelts? Why would we go to the doctor when we're sick? Because if you're sick, it must be that God wants you to be sick. So just suck it up, buttercup, and it'll be all okay. You see how silly this is? So we begin to see this idea really doesn't make much sense. There's one last assumption I want to mention. And that's, as we think about that something we say, and it's, it's a half true, it's a, a partly true. In one sense, it's completely true. We often say, God is in control. Something bad happens, and maybe we comfort ourselves with the fact that God is in control. And in an ultimate sense, that is absolutely true. God is in control. But listen carefully. In another sense, it's not true. Now, some of you should be on the edges of the seats ready to call the bishop. He said that God's not in control. Listen up. Because what we find is that God has put you in control of what happens right where you are. From Adam in the garden to your choosing your parking space this morning. That's a staggering thought, isn't it? That the God of the universe has actually put you and the person beside you and the person behind you in control. And that person, the person in your seat and the person beside you and behind you in front of you, make choices. And thus the crux of the theological point this morning. It's what we find all throughout Scripture, fully exemplified in Genesis chapter 1 that we read from this morning that Mary Holden read for us. I want you to hear it again. God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, listen carefully, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now in Hebrew, that word dominion is to rule or to reign over. And what God has done, the creator of the universe, has said, I've given you a mind to think. I've given you a conscience to guide you. My spirit will indeed work within you. I'm telling you what I want you to do and to be, but I'm putting you in control. I'm giving you dominion. I'm giving you freedom. You make your choice. This is the crux of being able to understand how we can make sense of human suffering inflicted upon another human by another human. You see, we are given something called free will. That's not a, a strange concept for you. And in that free will, we have the ability to choose to make choices, given dominion over this earth. God made the earth and God says, I have given you everything you need and I'm telling you, I want you to love each other. I want you to love this way, but you are free. You get to choose. 
And we begin to understand this, if you don't believe it, we begin, any of us begin to understand this fully when we think about it, when we have children. Anybody in here have children? Or grandchildren? You know, when your kids are growing up, you have some control over them, and at first you tell them what to do, and they do it, and it's awesome. And then they start questioning everything you've ever told them. And by the time they are teenagers, no, by the time they are two, they begin to exert their dominion over you and the world. Their favorite word is what? No. They don't want you telling them what to do. They don't want to do what you tell them to do. They don't want to eat what you're giving them to eat. And they say no. They are exercising and learning. I have dominion. They choose dominion. My will, my rights, my opinion, above all, forget you. And we can do that. And just as children, it's not a good way to live. And it will cause destruction of life, yours and someone else's. And so you know the greatest and the most courageous of people, the heroic things that ever happened on, on the planet, the stories that we tell about other people who do heroic and courageous things are people who use their dominion and their choices for good purposes. They are people who use their dominion, their freedom, their choices selfishly and sacrificially on behalf of other people. They did the right thing and we tell stories about those people because they're heroic and they do heroic things for others. Now, it's not that God hasn't told us what to do either. Not only did God create us with a conscience, God gives us others, parents, teachers, friends, to nurture us and teach us the way we should walk. And I think about all the verses and scriptures and one we read this morning, Micah 8, he has showed you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness Oh, and this next one. And walk humbly with your God. It's not that God hasn't told us, shown us how we're supposed to live our lives. It's just that God isn't going to force us to do that. In fact, God can't force us to do that without taking away our freedom. And when we come to Jesus, Jesus says, here's what God wants you to do. This is what I want you to do. Love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself and anybody else who needs you. And you know, if we could just remember those two commandments and live those out every day, you're going to end up doing the good and forsaking the evil. You're going to be pushing back the darkness of evil. I think about what happened in Rwanda. You know, it wasn't just one person doing all these horrible things. It was hundreds of thousands of people who were each exercising their dominion in a way that was evil and wrong. And what's interesting about this is that most of those people were Christians. But they began to intermingle the defining story of the Christian faith and of Christ, that God is love and that we're called to love one another, called to love Jesus Christ, for he has shown us the way, the truth, and the life. And he's given us the Holy Spirit's leading guiding us in church and with leaders and teachers and friends to lead and guide us. And the writings the apostles gave meant to teach us, but they began to intermingle that with another defining story that says that a certain class of human beings are like insects and the scripture and the call on their life simply didn't apply to those people. And so, even Christians sometimes find that their 
political defining story might become different than the Christian defining story. And we live in that tension. And what we've got to remember as Christian is our defining story that we're meant to live by, to love one another. Politically, this is a political election year and people go apes over political years. And it bothers me in the church because I love Republicans and I love Democrats. I don't like demonizing anybody and both sides are horrible at doing that. If you're not on my side, you're on the wrong side. Listen, the Christian faith, we as Christian people, Republicans and Democrats, stand and say we are always purple people because we always love each other regardless of how we feel about political worlds. I should have a big amen there from Christian people at Front Street. Because that's who we're called to be. We make choices. We exercise our freedom in ways that choice and those freedoms have consequences now, you can picture this in your mind, but if every human being on earth chose to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God, to love God and their neighbor, there wouldn't be any genocide. There wouldn't be hate crimes. There wouldn't be wars. And if we were all led by the Spirit, there wouldn't be horrible things we read about in the news every day. There wouldn't be affairs. There wouldn't be murders. There wouldn't be all these other things. But we exercise dominion and we make choices. Sometimes we're being silent in the face of others being hurt or actively pursuing hurt ourselves. So I want to ask you this morning, how are you using your dominion? Does it hurt or help? Does it affirm or tear down? How are you using your freedom? What are the voices you're listening to? Because God is calling us to be the force of good and light in the world, a purple people. Now, ultimately, you need to know God is going to defeat evil. That's, there's no question about that. And the way God defeats evil today, though, in our world in which we're living, is by his people listening carefully and saying, I choose to use my freedom on behalf of other people. I choose to risk in order to save. And I choose to overcome evil with good. This is what the Apostle Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. It's by the power of love that evil and hate is snuffed out. And that's what Scripture teaches and calls us to do. So which side are you on? Red, blue, right, wrong, my opinion, my freedoms, my rights, my wills. Are we going to love God's people and be a Lenten, purple people to all people? You get to choose. It's your choice. You have dominion. You have freedom. Leave it up to you.